everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, surfs up. Season 3, episode 57 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami, our first ever episode with Veronica Miller of the Liver Forum, starts now. This week on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. This is how I see the Liver Forum function. This is not a closed business group. This is something that fosters interaction if you're new to the field uh, where you're welcome to join and, and, and support and bring in your ideas. The hit it out of the park improvement will be when we have other correlates of disease progression that are not dependent on a biopsy. This disease of NAFLD and NASH and subsequent cirrhosis is a public health crisis and it's going to take a village of people to address this together and with shared unity of vision and effort and resources, we can take far bigger strides and leap forward than we have in the past 40 years. You said it takes a village. And to me, it, it almost feels like it takes a forum, right? A, a place where different people from different settings can go and be open in their conversations and debates and be confident that what they are saying will be maintained within that forum, but progress can be made in a way that benefits all parties. A global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Professor Jarn Schottenberg, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and today's guests, hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Manal Abdelmalik and Liver Forum Executive Director and key opinion leader Veronica Miller as they discuss the history and role of the Liver Forum with focus on its placebo arm project this week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. We're now past Thanksgiving in the U.S. I'm assuming that those of you who eat yourself into Thanksgiving comas have subsequently recovered. We all watch more U.S. football in the U.S. than we chose to, but even more to the point, if you're a global football fan, you've probably been watching 12 hours a day for the last week. I see Veronica nodding. I see Manal nodding. I even see Jorn nodding. Kind of. Jorn, Jorn got very, very lucky in the 89th minute yesterday when the Germans uh, were kind of kept alive by a pretty fantastic late goal. <laughs> that that uh, was deserved, and they kind of kept the momentum the entire game. So I'm not sure it was that lucky, but I agree. You could have. It should be noted that, as Jorn was saying, he wasn't sure it was that lucky. The internet gods cut him out, thereby suggesting that maybe the internet gods don't agree with Jorn's opinion on this, but he'll be back with us in a minute. In the meanwhile, hey, so we have Manal Abdulmalik with us, who hasn't been with us in like a year or something. Manal, how are you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, Roger. It's uh, nice to be back. It's great to have you. So, of all the people I know, you've had one of the more eventful years. Take a minute or two and tell everybody about your fulfilling year before we go on to Veronica. Well, you know, I, yeah, I've always had a, a fulfilling fulfilling life and uh, fulfilling years, you know, filled with children, family, careers, a lot of exciting work and patient care. But this year, I was particularly privileged to have been rejoining the Mayo Clinic. For those of you that don't know, I, I trained here, you know, as an internal medicine resident and gastroenterology fellow and was here at the Mayo when the very first case of fatty liver disease progressing to cirrhosis was defined and was privileged to be part of that and being invited to come back and be director of the hepatic 
biliary interest group here and lead clinical research in fatty liver disease is just a privilege, an amazing institution, amazing people, and really has felt like a homecoming for me after 17 years of being at Duke University and eight years before that at the University of Florida. My career is really taking me from north to south to half packing it in North Carolina all the way back up to frigid winters, but wonderful opportunities. That's fantastic. Yeah, Manel, we actually announced that on the podcast in your absence when it happened because we were all so excited for you. And at some point later on this podcast or another occasion, it will be great for you to share a little bit with this audience of what you shared with me about how Rochester is different from what it was the first time you were there. I thought that was really a pretty striking set of observations. But we'll save that because the other topic we want to get to or person we want to get to before we start today is Veronica Miller from uh, the Liver Forum who's uh, joining us for the first time. Hey, Veronica, how are you? Hey, good. How are you? Fine. So I noticed you were nodding when I was talking about watching all the world football. Do you have a team in this World Cup? Well, you know, I uh, this kind of relates a little bit to myself. I used to, I lived in Germany, as you know, and Jorn knows very well. So, of course, I do root for them. But I also lived in Argentina. So I always get, you know, a special kick when they do well. So I think those are probably the two main teams that, that I root for. So round one was a little disappointing, but round two was a lot better, mm-hmm. huh? Right. Yeah. It's such a good type of game to watch compared at least, you know, in my humble opinion, compared to the American football. You know, it's it's just a completely different game. I don't think it bears to compare them. It's not really appropriate. Yeah. Our colleague, Dr. Harrison, would agree with you and then tell you that what we play in the States is real football. But I've never gotten that, given that you don't use your feet very much to play football in the States. Right. <laughs> you caught lots of things, including put on gear and beat the stuffing out of each other. It's not mostly done with feet, at least not legally. Do me a favor, a little more broadly. Now we know a little bit about the geography of where you've lived, but a little more broadly about yourself, your career, what you do now, how you got here. Sort of a segue from what Manel was saying about moving back north to Rochester in frigid winters. I did my university studies in Manitoba, Canada, of all places. And I was in Winnipeg doing my undergraduate and my PhD in immunology. So Manel, I, I totally hear where you're, you know, what you're going through. Because we had it worse, if you can imagine that. But what really fascinated me so much about my PhD program, which which was in immunology, was just this amazing, amazing system within human bodies and, of course, mammals and other uh, animals and organisms on the evolutionary chain that is really there to detect, to discriminate between self and non-self. And I thought that was just such a brilliant, brilliant evolutionary strategy. In fact, I used to say the human body evolved to house an ever more complex immune system. So that's really the whole point of the evolution was the, the, to the perfection of the immune system, which of course can lead to a lot of trouble as well, because it often, the fine-tunedness of it often gets derailed. And I think that is part of what attracted me to looking at inflammatory diseases and, you know, what can happen as a result of too much inflammation, too much immune response. And I'll come back to that later when we talk about the liver form. So I, I did my PhD in immunology. And of course, it also deals a lot with infectious diseases. This was at a time when HIV was just uh, beginning to really take the world stage when it comes to infectious diseases, pandemics, epidemics, fear, excitement about new scientific findings, etc. So after my PhD, I did a postdoc at UCLA, where I actually worked on HIV. And those were the days when we used P24 culture assays to diagnose somebody. And we did PCRs, 
by moving samples from one heat block to another to amplify the genetic material. So this intersection basically between HIV and the immune system really fit well into my whole career path after that. So I did a lot of laboratory research in HIV, but decided at some point I really wanted to go beyond that and had this interesting offer from Frankfurt, Germany to come and join the team there. It was one of the larger clinics that did HIV clinical trials, and I was invited to come in. I'm not a physician, but be really as a scientist to help figure out the scientific direction of the center. And what we did was we established an in-house database of all patient data, and it really became, I think it was sort of like the first electronic health record in a way, because every patient's whole history was available at the push of a button. And we're talking about the early 90s here. And we tested every single drug that was being developed for HIV. And being involved in that whole process and looking at how Europe and the U.S. regulate drug development and which drugs get approved, how you innovate, the whole role of our load as a surrogate marker, we participated in some of the analysis that contributed to that. And also drug resistance and how that impacts treatment outcomes is really where, where my career then took off from changing from laboratory research to, I guess you could call it data science kind of research, looking at our databases and other collaborative cohorts across Europe and across the world. But what really, I think, stayed with me was the importance of both kinds of data. So what we now call real-world data, we used to call observational studies, observational cohorts, etc. Now we call it real-world data. But the interplay between that real-world data as a hypothesis raising tool and then the randomized clinical trials to test those hypotheses. That led me to the forum. I moved to the U.S. in 2001 and took over the role of director of the, at that time was the Forum for Collaborative HIV Research and have been here ever since. And we now work in many disease areas, including fatty liver disease and other liver diseases like primary sclerosis and cholangitis and pediatric cholestasis, etc. But the NASH part of the liver forum is really our biggest project. And you will see that I'm bringing parts of my past definitely into this conversation. First of all, that's fantastic. And then if you could help, one thing we ask of all our first-time guests, one thing our audience wouldn't know about you and might not believe or assume to be true if you didn't tell them. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I travel a lot and I think I do have sort of a traveling gene in my system somewhere. I don't know if anyone has defined its loci yet, but I do definitely do like to travel a lot. And in my last years at Frankfurt, I was definitely on major travel tours and I came to Washington a lot. So when it came time to do my move, I said, I can't simply just get on a Lufthansa flight and, you know, eight hours later, get out of Washington Dulles and say, oh, I've moved to the U.S. because it was too similar to my previous trips. So I looked for other opportunities. And it's sort of like if you want to do a road trip, right, you want to feel the miles go underneath uh, the tires of your car um, as you drive across the country. When you come across the ocean, you can't really do that. So I came on a freighter and I can tell you more about that. But I traveled on a freighter with five other passengers and a German captain, a Czech crew officers, and a Filipino crew. It was quite an amazing experience. It was so peaceful. I arrived, you wouldn't recognize my before and after pictures, basically, but it was just one of the most peaceful things I've ever done. Total zen out, not seeing land for six days and not, but, you know, as well as to not having, you know, go to fancy dinners and too many cocktails at the bar. It was just the absolute right experience. So I would highly recommend that kind of 
human experience. You basically set your clock ahead one hour every night. And by the time you get here, you have no jet lag. So you're, I'm thinking that makes our top 10. It does. I, I'll, I'll be thinking about taking a freighter next time I go to the U.S., but maybe, uh, maybe not. Well, depends. Uh, on, six yeah. days, you say. Depends how long you want to stay here. <laughs> right. Is it Cole Porter who wrote the song Slow Boat to China? This could be Slow Boat to... Well, Washington doesn't quite rhyme. We'd have to come up with the right one for that. Slow boat to Potomac. Well, we'll work on it. At any rate, with that, why don't we go to Brown Breakers? Just one good or interesting thing that's happened in the last week you'd like to share with our audience, either personal or professional. Let's limit it to one each because we're doing a lot of intro today for good reasons. So, brave one, go first. I haven't said too much, so uh, I'll cut in here early. Of course, we didn't have the opportunity to celebrate Thanksgiving, but I was thinking of you guys having your holidays, and I couldn't help but to catch a little bit of the World Cup fever. I thought I'd let it pass a little bit more. There's a lot of criticism about the organization, how it was set up, but still seeing Germany score in the last 10 minutes, making a potential move to the next round was kind of exciting. So that was great. On another private note, we're starting to have some Christmas parties here. It's, it's a good time of the year. Certain things are slowing down. Of course, you got a lot of stuff to finish up and I'm really looking forward to our holiday season. Well, maybe along the same lines. It was definitely a long weekend here. And one thing I did is I watched a movie that was two and a half hours long or even even longer than that, with Kate Blanchett, Tar, which kind of takes place in New York and Berlin. Maybe it sort of fit my global personality type. I highly recommend it. And to get back to the football, Jorn, when you were saying at the beginning that it wasn't luck, that Germany actually played pretty well. We often say luck benefits a prepared mind. So maybe we can say luck prepares uh, benefits a prepared foot to kick. That would certainly fit uh, the Gemeinschaft. So I think I think that's right. Yeah. And maybe his score. It was more of a, it was a very forceful kick out of like five meters. Oh, or oh he roofed it. He, he, to he totally roofed it. It was a brilliantly taken goal. I, I agree with that. Uh, I think this year, the highlight for me is instead of a 14 hour road trip with the family in the car to St. Louis, it was a seven hour road trip. But the joy of watching my kids watch their granddad pop out of his recliner every time Macy made a goal and uh, watching the World Cup together, our generations uh, enjoying that was really a joy this year. My, my joy is also around the World Cup. Well, Thanksgiving was great. I got to spend it with family or uh, uh, son and daughter-in-law made Thanksgiving for the family, which was great. We have a funny tradition, which is my daughter-in-law is not Jewish, but adores a potato, a Jewish potato pancake. So I have to bring latkes to every event we do now. It doesn't matter what the denomination or non-denomination is. We have Hanukkah latkes, Christmas latkes, Thanksgiving latkes, Easter latkes, you name it. We've got latkes for it. Well, we'll find you a latke occasion. Okay, then no, I, Veronica. Next time we're in this, next time we're in the same part of the world, which may be a little while longer than I'd like. I will be sure to bring with me uh, half a dozen sealed latkes you can take home with you. People who know me know I love to cook in general. Most of the stuff I cook is really healthy. That obviously is not dripping in oil and grease is not usually a good health prescription. But so that was fantastic, and uh, yeah, I think all the football was great. The U.S. has acquitted itself admirably so far, although it better figure out how to score in the next ninety minutes or it's going home. So much for that. We've not done this before, but Manal back in Dublin looked at. Veronica looked at me and said, you know, you two should really meet. And Veronica knew a bit about the podcast and I knew more about the liver form. But after we chatted, we decided that while the liver form doesn't, neither seeks nor gets a lot of public attention, that this might be a good venue for people to understand more about the forum and what it does in some of its programs. This is the first time we're doing this, hopefully not the last. We're hoping to do today's Veronica to educate folks generally about the forum and Jorn and Manal are both intimately involved. So their points of view, I think will be fantastic. And then to talk about any one of the, one specifically of the programs programs that you're involved in now that you feel comfortable talking about so that people have a flavor, A, for generally what it is, and then B, specifically, at least one of the things you do. I think if we do that right, that'll take up a whole program. 
that, and we'll go on from there. So, Veronica, let me turn the floor back to you for the third time. We've we've done uh, your your life itinerary. We've done your personal path. Now, let's talk a little bit about the liver form. Right, and thank you so much, Roger, for inviting me and for Manal to make that suggestion. And Manal and Yuren are both on the steering committee, so please jump in if you think anything I'm saying is not what you understand the liver form to be, because that would, of course, not be very good. So, as I mentioned before, I came to Washington to take over the leadership of the HIV Forum, which had been set up with the specific goal to bring together all the parties. And in HIV, for those that remember, there was a lot of patient activism and very active, quote-unquote, active activism in terms of demands, expectations, as well as education of the patients involved in these activities. They often knew more about antivirals and HIV disease than some of the people presenting at the major conferences. But it really started this whole new concept of the patient voice and including the patient voice in drug development, which now seems sort of a standard. But in those days, it was quite revolutionary. And I have to say, knowing many of the people originally involved and looking at them, what what they're doing now, I have to really congratulate them on the success of their activities. It wasn't always pleasant and sometimes maybe a little bit too in your face, but they got their point across. People like Tony Fauci, for example, understood and said, you know, I'm not going to fight them. I'm going to invite them in and talk with them. And so that's really how this whole idea of the patients themselves having a voice and a say and how drugs get developed, especially for the affected community. So I've been invited to the forum because I was an expert in HIV drug resistance. So I've been invited as an academic member, expert, just like Yuren and Manal are academic experts in our liver forum and knew about the forum. And when they were looking for a new director, the forum at that time was George Washington University. They recruited me and I thought it was a good time to make that move back to the U.S. in slow motion on a slow boat, as we said. I came back to Washington and to the U.S. my first time living in Washington to take over the HIV forum. And there were obviously, this was 2001, by the way, I officially moved here a week before September 11th in 2001. So that was definitely a very memorable time for me. The idea of the HIV forum really was to bring all the parties together, the drug developers, the patients, the regulators, other governmental agencies and researchers, and basically anyone who had a say in what should happen with HIV research. And through this venue of a safe space, respect for each other's perspective, independence from any one of the parties, but really sort of a very unique safe space where all the parties can come together at one table is what the forum was all about. So for me, it was quite a switch from getting my own data and presenting my own data and findings around the world to masterminding and leading this approach to how we deal with research gaps. It quickly became apparent after a couple of years that other disease areas could also really benefit from this. And so one of the first areas we expanded to after HIV was hepatitis C. And it really happened by word of mouth because virologists at companies that had worked with us on HIV said, you know, we're basically, they called me up and said, we're working on direct acting antivirals for hepatitis C. Is that something the forum could help us with? We don't want to make some of the same mistakes in terms of, for example, sequences and drug resistance and subtypes and all of these different factors that go into characterizing the pathogen that you want to treat and developing the drugs for that. So that's how we started the Hepatitis C Forum. That was quite a ride, actually, because it was through the forum at one of our forum meetings that this insight came about that we did 
didn't have to randomize against the old standard of care control. We were trying to figure out how on earth we could have a trial with a standard of care of pegylated interferon ribavirin compared to 48 weeks of treatment compared to 8 or 10 or 12 weeks of treatment for a direct acting antiviral. And once we kind of broke that bubble, it became so clear because it wouldn't even make scientific sense to do that. But the idea was that we could use our historic knowledge of the response to cure rates in that old standard of care and then compare the direct acting antivirals if there was a big enough difference. If the old standard of care for a specific kind of patient and genotype was, let's say, 60%, but the direct acting antivirals always gave you 95%, obviously, that was a big enough difference that we said it wouldn't be scientifically sound nor ethical to compare them directly in a study, but use that historic knowledge. So it wasn't really a historic external control. It was really our knowledge of the efficacy of these standards of care. And the randomization really was between different legs of treatment, different doses, etc. So that really, I think everyone agrees, really revolutionized the field and allowed for this very quick development of additional direct acting antivirals and combination treatment. So that's how we got into something related to the liver. We'd gone from HIV and we're now looking at a pathogen in the liver. And I remember once I was visiting a BMS up in New Jersey and we're talking about what could the forum do in the area of inflammation. And somebody said, well, you know, there is a meeting happening right now at the, with the FDA and ASLD on liver and includes liver fibrosis and inflammation. And that was that famous ASLD FDA meeting uh, to talk about endpoints for NASH clinical trials. And they said, that's really something the forum should look at. So that was one sort of a sign of interest. And then after this meeting, and Arun Sanyal was, was one of the leads together with Scott Friedman of this meeting, I talked with Arun and Scott and others, and we decided, well, let's try a liver forum in NASH. So this was the first time we were working without a pathogen. This was liver and fatty liver disease and fibrosis and inflammation and the NASH, the, the fat part of that as well. And so we decided to, well, let's give it a try. And that's how the liver forum started. So it's always by word of mouth in some form or of another, somebody that's worked with us and says, you should really be looking at this. So we started the forum in 2014 and I've been going strong ever since. Let's turn to Jorn and Manal and ask, were you were you familiar at that point in time, even before the forum came to fatty liver? And if so, how or what impressions did you have back then and at that moment? I recall those days. The field was challenged with trying to understand the pathogenesis and many small, either investigator initiated studies or smaller early phase trials starting up and the lack of any regulatory path for NAFLD and NASH. You know, it was clear that a regulatory path was needed because the first drug, you know, vitamin E and, and pioglitazone lent resolution of NASH, but nobody exactly knew, especially after industry literally jumped into an arena where there was a lot of people standing back and watching and decided, my goodness, there's opportunity here. There's opportunity to develop new therapies that actually can resolve steatohepatitis and maybe improve fibrosis. And it was a huge wake-up call because we had no roadmap. We had no roadmap on endpoints. We had no roadmap on trial design. We had no roadmap 
on comparative thresholds for assessing drug efficacy. Clearly, there needed to be a safe space, if you will, for deliberation, academic and industry exchange, setting priorities and agendas, and doing so with breaking down barriers that needed to come down so that regulators can engage with, with the industry and engage with the investigators and the scientists and also engaged with societal stakeholders as we had to write guidelines around new diseases. And so the liver forum was incremental in, in creating one of the first platforms by which to do that. And I remember being there and it almost felt like really what good science should be all about. Cross-pollination of ideas, of bringing people together who are uniquely different, think different, have different agendas, different priorities, and different ways of creatively looking at the same problem and cross-nourishing them in a manner where they had to collaborate together literally and to do great things. We almost stopped taking the tiny little baby steps where everybody was working in their own silo to strategizing together as a community of stakeholders interested around a disease, which is a great area of need, had a, a huge gap on many different fronts and making together incremental steps that were broader and bigger than any one entity can do alone. And it was really a very engaging first meeting and clear I've been part of this uh, forum ever since and have been the both recipient of the engagement and had an opportunity to participate in the process, which was really very fulfilling. Yeah, I think I, I have a little bit different perspective. I, I can't remember the first days. Nobody invited me to join an FDA-ASLD meeting. So coming from a total different perspective, I was active in NASH and uh, was running my animal models in the lab and, and looking at patients. And then whenever I visited the ASLD, I realized there was some activities surrounding the conference. And then I'm not sure how I finally got my hands on the program, but it might have been through Detlef Schupan who said, you know, you got to... It was Detlef Schupan. <laughs> it was Detlef Schupan. He said, yeah, you're and he should be here. Yeah, he, he kind of tacked me along and it was a uh, free beer. No, it was a great program in just looking at the speakers. And the memorable thing for me was that it's not only an expert like Arun speaking or Manal presenting. It, it was a regulator that was there. It was industry there. And these guys, I normally didn't, they didn't come up to me and approach me about my research. So I thought that was, as a young investigator growing into the field, was an, a unique opportunity to exchange and engage. And I really liked the presentations too. So that was just uh, very exciting. And then Veronica asked me to join the steering committee you know, a year ago. Of course, that was something I'd happily accepted. So that's great. So Veronica, the only question I had had for you about early days, although I think Manal kind of touched on it, is you could use lots of different nouns to describe an organization like this. And it's interesting that you chose forum or that whoever chose Forum chose Forum. What was the thinking behind that exactly? And were there other names that you're aware of that were considered that might not have been used and why not? Very interesting question. And when the Forum for Collaborative HIV Research was established, it was based on a recommendation from Al Gore at the White House, who had met with all the different parties individually and said, OK, we need to find a way to bring them all together to really catalyze the research and, and facilitate better research in HIV, because it was such a huge problem that neither the government nor the researchers nor industry could, could really solve it on their own. There 
were too many really important and emergency type questions that needed to be asked. So there was a series of Keystone Dialogue meetings. The result of that was that the Forum for Collaborative HIV Research was established. So who came up with the word forum? I don't know. But I like the word forum because I think of it as when you think about Roman times and Greek times, there would be a forum. And it's where people come to and then leave, right? And there's roads. It's sort of like where everybody comes together in the center of town or at the marketplace. And there's roads coming in and there's roads coming out. And some people might pass through. Some people might come in and then go out back back the same way. But it's at that moment of the meeting that something happens, something that wouldn't have happened if those people weren't all in that same space at the same time. And everyone then goes back. I mean, Manal has her career now at the Mayo Clinic and engages in that. And so does Jorn and our patients do their patient organization stuff and pharmaceutical companies continue with their clinical research development and do their marketing strategies, etc. But at the moment that they're all in the same space, something else happens. But the roads come in and the roads go out. And that's how I think of a forum as it relates to, you know, the ancient times and modern times. That's a great answer. And it sounded quite like what Manal depicted to kind of paint in the first place, although in greater detail. So, fantastic. So now let's step into what are you working on today? The path within NASH and where are we today and what's of interest? Right. So what's so challenging in NASH is that the amount of evidence needed to change the paradigm is may seem insurmountable. Many of us think we already have a sufficient evidence. And when I talk to the paradigm shift, it's really going from this very invasive, imprecise, very blunt tool called a liver biopsy read by a pathologist or two that tells you whether you have NASH and it has a very blunt scale from zero to four, for example, for fibrosis. And there's not much you can do with that. To being much more precise, being much more dynamic, being able to see does marker A change? Does marker A predict disease progression? If marker A goes up, is the disease progression going to be faster? If marker A goes down, is disease progression going to be slower? There's no way we have that dynamic range to even think about that kind of an approach now. And of course, it's a lot easier when you have a pathogen like HCV or HIV. But this is basically where the field needs to go. And it's sort of like we're back in the dark ages with what I call a piece of liver that gets taken out of someone and a very blunt instrument of reading it to when we see all of the amazing, amazing arrays of transcriptomics and all the different omics and the association of 30 or 40 different biomarkers and how they change within one patient. There's just so much richness there. And how can we get a handle on that to really say we need to really get so much more sophisticated than this very blunt tool that we're using now. So that is one of our major aims. A lot of what we do is when people say we're not agreed on a definition, etc., we then do case definitions. We've had several papers on that. But I think everyone now agrees that the biggest question is exactly this. How do we have this paradigm shift the way we had an HIV when virus load was accepted as a surrogate, the way we did an HCV when we said the old standard of care is not scientifically appropriate for DAA development. That is what we need to change. And it's challenging. And I think especially we haven't yet mentioned the C word, but certainly COVID. COVID made things difficult over the last years. First of all, our regulatory colleagues were very, very occupied, even if they weren't in infectious diseases. It's, it just sort of changed everything. There was a lot of disconnect 
happening, this connection of people talking. We weren't able to meet in person. And I'm talking about conferences and all these different venues. So I think coming out of this COVID haze, we now really have this huge opportunities in front of us about how do we take the data that's being generated that is of huge quantities and really distill it down into something that says, yeah, this is what we can use to diagnose the disease, to predict treatment response, to predict prognosis, and to really show that this really is a true predictor of disease outcome, the clinical endpoint that we're currently married to. So that's really what we're trying to do. And we're approaching this in different ways. One of them is through data collaboration, and that includes a project where we are gathering all the placebo arms from trials that have already been finished. And Manal, thank you for your role in that project as co-chair of that working group. So I think the placebo arm project will really help us look at sufficient number of patients, not on treatment, but selected, you know, meeting the inclusion criteria of entering a NASH clinical trial and really get a better handle as to what predicts stability of disease versus progression versus improvement. That will be extremely important because it's that dynamic of the placebo arm that kind of confounds everybody and and frustrates everybody because not everybody on the placebo arm gets worse. Some of them get better and some of them stay stable. And that really, the little treatment effect that we are going to see then gets completely blurred by this placebo up and down. I was going to reach out and hand it over to Manel because She's really one that on this podcast has discussed this at length, all the, the concept of stability and not progressing. And I think you've really gone through a lot of content that the Liver Forum covers here and that are most important to the field. So I'd be you know interested to hear Manal again and see, and see how she views the stability aspect, you know, over maybe what has changed in that over the last year, one and a half. Is there any movement? Veronica has brought up several very important points. We struggle in our trial design because one, we can't a priori predict a placebo response rate. And we've seen promising drugs fail because the placebo response just happened to be higher than one would have otherwise anticipated. And at the same time, as we design trials around NAFLD and NASH, adherence to clinical trial designs has become an important issue. If you have patients who stop participating or elect not to finish or undergo an end-of-treatment biopsy, that can potentially cripple an ongoing study. And so the element of understanding Understanding placebo cohorts in their totality, predictors of placebo responsiveness, predictors of adherence, getting an assessment of the background noise, both as a collective cohort, but if there are even regional differences, site differences in how we practice when we implement, quote, a standard of care around NAFLD and NASH, which is the background for placebo interventions, but I don't know if my standard of care approach is the same as yours, you weren't in Germany. But yet we pull all this data together and try and make heads and tails of it as if it's one collective group. So I think by capitalizing and leveraging in these data sets collectively, we can learn from the thousands of patients we've treated in the field as a whole over the handful or the few hundred that are any one single unique program and draw some very more powerful conclusions and assessments and even benchmarks by which to power and design future trials so that we can be more effective. And this is, just gets at the collective whole as opposed to the strength of the collective whole as opposed to the parts, if you will. The background care is, of course, a source of variability. I agree. Something that's more interesting to me is if we combine those two histologically 
accepted endpoints, fibrosis regression and NASH resolution. I'm thinking back to some of the presentations we saw at ASLD. The placebo rate really tickles down. The effect size or the efficacy size also loses and you don't see you know, big changes. But it, as long as we get the placebo response down a little bit, I would be satisfied. And actually, EMEA has not really stepped back from, from wanting both of these endpoints um, being positive. And I wonder, Manel, what your take is. Would this be analysis where you are more inclined to say, well, there's a true effect because you have a placebo of 5%, let's say uh, an active drug arm of, let's I'm making this up, 15, but it's significant because you have enough patients. I think we still are at a crossword where we have to be flexible. And what I mean by that is while the composite endpoint of NAS resolution and fibrosis regression is a much stronger endpoint by which you're going to minimize your placebo response rate, the armamentarium of therapies that we have to work at for NASH may have different targets. We may risk, if we are too stringent in our consideration of endpoints, defining a very good, safe antifibrotic, and that's really all that it does. It's not an anti-metabolic therapy, but would work together if combined. But before we can do combination studies, we have to study each of these therapies by themselves. And so while I appreciate the dual surrogate endpoint is lends strength to be able to deal both with NASH and fibrosis, we're still going to be doing trials where the mechanism of action, the target of interest may be strictly an anti-inflammatory drug or an anti-fibrotic drug or be a potent anti-steatotic and then with time impact the downstream mechanisms of inflammation and fibrosis. So one of two things is going to happen. We either need the all-powerful, all-encompassing, you know, hit it out of the park drug, which trumps any of the background noise, or we have to make allowances to tease out the risks, benefits, and alternatives of unique therapies, which is where I think we currently are in the field. I, I agree. I'm with you. And this almost sounds like a liver forum communication, Veronica. That's not entirely surprising, is it, Your No, it's not. It's great to have both on here. I had a question from maybe a different angle. We've spent a bunch of time on this podcast, in part because of my bent, which is statistical, taking a look at some of the issues around reader reliability and the impact that's that had on all the things that we're talking about. I mean, um, the paper that Beth Brunt was the lead author on that, that Quentin was talking about and Nancy and Nash taken a couple of times since suggests at least that you can resolve some of the placebo variability simply by doing a better job of getting your readers aligned. I'm wondering if that is related to any of the work being done in this project or other things you're doing and how that plays into this discussion of getting placebo results under control. Right, right, right. That's a very good point. Yes, definitely. I often talk about that aspect of it as being an incremental improvement to really get to better definition of, for example, the famous ballooning cell that seems to pop out in and out of people's fields of visions. And that's an incremental improvement, but it's not going to get us there. It's not going to be, you know, hitting the ball out of the park. So I think along with those incremental improvements, we need to have exponential improvements. That's really where we need to apply what every other field is doing, uh, which is machine learning, artificial intelligence. These histology images, they're so complex and have so much information. And here we are depending on can somebody pick out a ballooning cell or kind of judging, yeah, that looks like a lot of fibrosis to me. And again, the whole buildup of fibrosis and the regression of fibrosis, those are very, very complex mechanisms that happen, not just in the liver, in other organs as well. I mean, we, after all, we do need fibrosis for wound healing, but it's not just fibrosis, yes or not. It, collagen is, is just a very, very fascinating field unto itself. So I think we need to get much more granular at what we're looking 
looking at and how we interpret that. And I call that the exponential improvement. And then the hit it out of the park improvement will be when we have other correlates of disease progression that are not dependent on a biopsy. Because even if you apply all of the AI and machine learning that you want, you still can't take a biopsy every month and you can't take a biopsy every three months. You can do it at the beginning and at the end of the study. Roger, you said something that I'm going to beg to differ with a little bit. I see the ultimate mission of this placebo working group, if you will, not so much to minimize the placebo response rate. If somebody's going to get a placebo response rate, all the more power to them. They're not going to to go on long-term therapies, but really to understand this better. Because if we can define a priori, who's going to respond optimally, effectively to lifestyle modification, they, they're the patients that shouldn't get put in these trials to begin with. In which case, we don't have this level of heterogeneity and variances, and we have to really strive better. Once we have a, a, a totality of patients who are on placebo, we can a priori then do the deeper dive into into their metabolomics, into their genomics, into their clinical or genetic phenotypes to figure out who uh, of these placebo patients uh, has that dual surrogate endpoint or has the, the best outcomes or the worst outcomes, in fact, such that we can do better with picking the right patients for the right trials, for the right duration, and in fact, doing better than we are currently doing with one-size-fits-all approach. You have NASH and you go into a trial and we're learning more and more more about the heterogeneous response, even in placebo. Some people progress, other people resolve their disease, but why and who are they? And so we can do better getting them into the right studies. Yeah, I, I always wonder uh, which patient am I selecting for which study too? And sometimes it depends on which study nurse is there, right? This is so much pre-selection ongoing here that I always not worried, but I think, you know, how robust can the trial be that even if it's not the best patient can still figure this out, I think. And through the liver form, actually, through the exchange, through ideas, discussing that, we can, through the field, uh, unify the whole type of study selection, enrolling patients, you know, not telling every investigator who they should enroll, but kind of agreeing on certain standards of best practice, what should have been achieved or done before. So I think that's also when new investigators come into the field, they have very high screen failure rates and how the liver form can help. Ultimately, somebody working with the forum need to issue some guidelines to make sure that once you've cleaned this up, a little bit that what Jorn describes as the challenge happens, which is that people apply this learning correctly as compared to, well, gee, this is great to know, but here's the study nurse I have here today. Not that that's what you said you would do, Jorn, but I can see other locations that were a little more taxed or less scrupulous taking this information and not adopting it nearly well enough. So what do you think it will take beyond simply learning to make it happen? So framed a little differently, what will it take for the success of a placebo working group to be able to make the most incremental advancements and paradigm shifting uh, ascertainments that will benefit the field as a whole. Veronica, you might be really equipped to lend some insights with regards to this. I mean, what do you think it's going to take and and the level of buy-in, if you will, and the structure that you had envisioned with regards to management of data and, and sharing of data and implementation of the multiple questions and analyses that might need to be done? Right. Thanks. And both of what you and Joran have said is just so right on and also the way 
way you ask your questions, Roger. So the way we envision this project to work is by, number one, a sponsors, because they're the one industry sponsors, uh, willingness to share the data. And so far, we've had very, very good responses from that. And I think we need to divide it into a couple of different components. One of them is sort of this general raising all of our collective knowledge about describing the placebo experience. Let's talk about the placebo patient journey, right? What happens to the patients on a placebo arm when they are recruited into a clinic? clinical trial, because that's very important, because then we're going to be comparing this to other patients that are recruited into a clinical trial that are on treatment, right? So a patient that undergoes all of the, you know, the study nurse talking to them, enrolling, coming in for visits, maybe being a little bit more uh, prone to stick to a healthier diet and maybe walk a little bit more just because they're part of a study and they suddenly energized about, about the situation. And so it's very different from other real world data cohorts which are also important. But this is a very unique example. So we can learn a lot collectively. And of course, that knowledge will be out there. But the other part that I think this will really benefit is also the individual pharmaceutical sponsors, because they're the ones that basically, with the advice of the academic experts, obviously, and and patient input, write the protocols for inclusion-exclusion criteria. And so they will want to see how does the data that we have in this cohort apply to the drug that they want to study, the kinds of patients they're interested in enrolling, and what can they expect in terms of a placebo response or disease stability or disease progression, depending on how they select their patients. So we will have both the sort of confidential kind of analysis and then sort of the, you know, for everyone's benefit kind of analysis that will be published. And I think once that data is out there, I mean, pharmaceutical companies, they're into efficiency. If that information is available, I think that will really help them decide how to use that information for selection of patients. And what I found in all the other disease areas I've worked in is something that is applied through drug development usually finds its way into clinical practice. For example, HIV viral load initially was only done in the context of clinical trials. It became a surrogate marker. And then before you knew it, everyone was applying it in the clinic and it was written into clinical treatment guidelines to use viral load as a treatment outcome to monitor for treatment failure, etc. But it started in drug development. So I have no doubt, Roger, that once these pieces of information come out, that they will not be translated, first of all, to make overall drug development more efficient. And to the extent that they are feasible to implement, will find their way into clinical practice as well. That makes tremendous sense. And it's it- imbues a project with this with the kind of energy and anticipation I think it deserves. So that that's a great way of looking at it. We're kind of rolling towards the bottom of the hour. So before we get to closing question, any comments, Manal, Yor, and Veronica, you want to share that we've we've not uh, wrote this whole subject that we've not touched on yet? No, I think it, it will even serve our regulators well to have access to broader population-based data. It's almost gotten to a point where, you know, we duplicate a placebo arm with with every study. We subject hundreds of patients to no potential therapeutic option, not to say that the standard of care isn't a therapeutic option, but if there was a cohort of patients that could create that benchmark for the regulators such that the industry on the same amount of dollars could optimize the sample size of patients who were exposed to these therapies to get a better handle on efficacy and tolerability and duration of treatment necessary 
necessary to achieve clinically meaningful endpoint, then we've also done both the regulators a service by giving them access to broader data sets that are a mirror image, if you will, or come close to it, the constructs of which these trials are being done. And we've also empowered the industry to make the very cumbersome and very large dollar amount to do these studies maybe go a little bit of a longer way such that they can treat more patients of interest with their therapies or combination of therapies over yet again replicating a placebo cohort and maybe we can leverage limited resources more effectively. Well, this is how I see the Liver Forum function and uh, bringing together all these sponsors. And I think, you know, it's important Veronica can say more about that to say this is not a closed business group. This is something that fosters interaction if you're new to the field uh, where you're welcome to join and, and, and support and bring in your ideas or at least ask questions you're having. And, you know, it would be such a great step forward if the project, as Manal highlighted this, you know, being able to enroll a smaller placebo arm, picking up, building up your program on the established placebo responses, if that could come into uh, clinical trials, uh, that would be huge for the field. Even beyond that, getting the patient's voice in there and getting their feedback, how should we assess quality of life, all these things that are important next to the primary efficacy analyses as secondary outcomes is something that I learned a lot from during my interaction with the Liver Forum. And as such, uh, I think it's uh, it's a very useful tool to the field. So in closing, I think, well, thank you again, Manal and Joran, for all of your comments. It's just very inspiring. And the reason why I love my job so much is to work with people like you. And I think kind of touching on what Manal was saying, the opportunity here is it goes beyond uh, just learning about what happens to people that are enrolled in a clinical trial but are randomized to placebo. We had a workshop, a, a collaborative workshop with our Berkeley statisticians last week where Lisa Lavange was talking. Now, Lisa Lavange used to be the head statistician at the FDA and she's now academic in North Carolina, but she's published sort of the seminal papers on the master protocols, which is the platform trials, umbrella trials, etc. And she talked again at this workshop, which had to do with real world data about the need to share placebo arms. And we can go the route of a master protocol and a platform trial design, which is hugely complicated in setting up that infrastructure to do it as a formal master protocol platform trial, which, you know, people, it's not for the faint of heart, believe me. But, you know, with this kind of a shared placebo from past studies, you know, I think we really need to push the envelope here a little bit too and see kind of, is there something in between a sort of fully master protocol platform trial to a shared placebo or every trial having their own placebo arm, but something of a shared placebo in between that doesn't take this incredible infrastructure setup that really prevents most people from even kind of going into that kind of thinking. So I'm really thinking maybe, Manal, we could talk about sort of the additional opportunities here in terms of a shared placebo arm with past placebo patient and current placebo patients. But that's to be discussed. But I've got some ideas about that to take us further. Isn't that half the fun is generating all the ideas? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Listening to this conversation, I'm really excited by how much stuff goes on in the background that folks never get exposed to, how much thinking and how many challenging ways of dealing with important issues that, that folks just never get to access or deal with. So I'm, I'm glad we could have this conversation, Veronica. I'm hoping we can do this every three, four months. Thank you, Roger. A different elements of what you do, because I think it will help our audience. And gosh, I know it's helped me a bunch. Closing comment, no more than one sentence, okay? Because we all like to talk, all four of us. One thing you would like people who listen to this episode today to take away with them. You know, this disease 
of NAFLD and NASH and subsequent cirrhosis is a public health crisis. And it's going to take a village of people to address this together and with shared unity of vision and effort and resources. We can take far bigger strides and leap forward than we have in the past 40 years that we've been trying to work in this disease. And I think we are at a pivotal time in the field and with all stakeholders really engaged and united. So I'm really excited about the next, I won't say 40 years, I'm hoping it'll come in much incremental, shorter period of time where we can move the field towards really effective treatments and potentially even discoveries for cures. But it would be great to put a dent in obesity-related cirrhosis and its impact on our society. Let me take a shot at this, Roger. Uh, One sentence, it's been really great to be on here with Veronica and uh, Manal, obviously. And if I can say, looking back 10 years back, I can say that, you know, this was the start of sparing a lot of patients from undergoing liver biopsy in a placebo-controlled trial. I think uh, I would be very proud to be part of this. My closing comment is without collaboration and maybe going back to the uh, sports image, whether we hit the ball out of the park or kick it into the net, it's all about teamwork and collaboration and we need to work together and everyone brings something to the table. Amen. And as a guy who spent 30 years in the industry watching marketing and some medical affairs people tell me that their companies had things that they knew that were much too important to share with any other drug company that were about this big. For those who can't see, I'm holding my fingers a good three centimeters apart and held progress back because nobody ever moved beyond them all knowing the same thing. Manal, you said it takes a village. To me, it almost feels like it takes a forum, right? A, a place where different people from different settings can go and be open in their conversations and debates and be confident that what they are saying will be maintained within that forum, but progress can be made in a way that benefits all parties. Now, now you are correct. I stand corrected because it is a forum, <laughs> not the village. <laughs> but, uh, as you know, you brought you were one of the two people along with Stephen who brought me to this podcast in the first place, so you've got rights over me for life. We know that already, but thank you. And Veronica, Manal, you're in all of you. Thank you, Veronica. Thanks for agreeing to do this. It's, t- it's taken us a while to get here, but boy, what a fantastic episode. So um, I loved it. Great. I'll be back with business report for everybody in a couple of minutes. You are, and I'll see you next week. Manal and Veronica, we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye now. And now for the season three, episode 57 business report. Slava Ukraini, Slava, glory to Ukraine, glory to heroes. Let's all recognize and give props to the continued courage and valor of the Ukrainian people as they move into this cold and dark winter. Thanksgiving may be over, but the World Cup is in full swing. I'll repeat last week's business section opening line, but for a different reason. Here's the line. Over time, we have become an increasingly global podcast. Co-hosts from the UK or Australia, depending on the week, and Germany. And daily, Podstatus top 250 listings in 8 to 15 countries, but never the US. Last week, this was a gateway for me to discuss the calorie overlaid in US Thanksgiving holiday. This week, it allows me to thank Jorn and Veronica for maintaining the football focus and discussion, football in a global meeting, during week one of the World Cup. Next week, Louis should be back, and we hope to have a World Cup sub-feature for that episode and those running throughout the month of December. It should be fun. Two live episodes left. After this week, we have only two live episodes left in 2022, followed by our regular end-of-year roundup interviews, conversations, really, with some of our favorite leaders in liver medicine and advocacy. I'm hoping that next week's episode will be our hashtag preview, or preview one, depending upon whether we can cover everything that matters in a single episode. If not, we have a backup plan in place, and hashtag will be the following week. This week's Vault episode looks back to our end of 2021 conversation with Manal Abdul-Malik. 
It was great to have Manal with us for this episode. We've missed her this past year. She's been exceptionally busy, though, assuming her new role at Mayo Clinic, moving her family, and continuing her vast spate of other hepatology-related activities. Last year, Louise and I conducted a long, extremely thoughtful end-of-year conversation with Manal, which posted as Season 2, Episode 63.1. You can hear in some of her questions and observations in that conversation the seeds for elements of today's liver forum discussion, and also a sense of the broader currents driving the consortium and liver forum activities. It's a long conversation, but I think it's worth another listen, so enjoy. And with that, I'm off. Thanks to the crew, Jake, Magic Mike, Eric, Steve, for all their excellent work over the past several weeks. I'm confident that they, like me, will be excited to step back from the weekly grind and spend the last half of December considering larger picture issues about this podcast and what 2023 will mean for us. When we have things to say, you'll hear them right here in the Weekly Business Report. So until next week, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Go USA. Make the knockout rounds. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.